Hey you, thanks for tuning into the Waiting List Podcast. I'm Long Long. I'm Daniel. And I'm Jacqueline. And we are three watch friends with a healthy obsession for watches. So sit back and relax with us while we chat with collectors, industry giants, and share some good vibes. Welcome to the pod, guys. And today we are very happy to welcome an independent watchmaker that has been in the industry for a considerable amount of time but has recently been uh, making headlines with a certain regulator at detente, RP1. Um, as you can probably tell from the name, it has a detent escapement. It's, of course, Ryle Pages. Welcome to the show, Ryle. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to yeah, be it's here. Great to, it's great you. to have you on the show. Yeah. Right. So um, we're going to start off with the main interview. So my first question, Ryle is with a name like that you clearly aren't swiss right so where are you from and how did you end up in switzerland in fact um i was born in switzerland you know it's um my grandparents uh are from spain and they came to switzerland in the maybe in the 60s or 70s and my parents both of my parents are spanish but they met in Switzerland, um, so they always live in Switzerland, and, um, and I was born in Switzerland. But uh, with both of my parents are Spanish, so, so right now I have do- a double nationality, the Spanish and the Swiss nationality. But I always, I grew up in Switzerland, um, and I feel myself more like a Swiss uh, than a, a Spanish. So do you like go back to spain like is there family in spain and whereabouts in spain were, were your grandparents yeah. from? um my from my father's side is from barcelona and from my mother came from the south of uh, madrid i still have some families uh here there okay but uh not so close you know, my, my brother are in Switzerland, is in Switzerland, my cousins also. It's more, uh, yeah. And incidentally, you know, out of interest, what is the watchmaking scene in Spain like for watches? <laughs> Very poor. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I only know, I don't really know about watchmaking in, in Spain, but... Uh, I know uh, very good guys, uh, independence also. It's uh, Atelier de Chronometry. I don't know if you know. It's uh, They are very good um, based in Barcelona. And they are really making very good job. I really like it. Mm, okay. Like, when I was researching for this interview, um, your story seemed to show, like, a lot of resemblance to Parmigiani's story, right? With so, starting yeah. off as a watch restorer... And, and then obviously having your own brand. <laughs> and then I realized you actually yeah. trained, you actually went to Parmigiani, right? Exactly. So, yeah. How did you get into the industry? Um, especially, you know, I know you have a, a great passion for art and architecture and even furniture, right? So how did you get into washes? Yeah, in fact, at, at the end of school, I was attracted by... Uh some creative uh, things. I wanted maybe to make the art school here in La Chaux-de-Fonds. Uh, there is a very good art school. 
but I I also really like something technical, you know, um, and work with my hands. And uh, in fact, um, I have an older brother, and um, one of his friends was doing the watchmaking school of Le Locle. Oh. And he told me, maybe you can try, uh, make a trial at school for to be a watchmaker. And uh, I did that uh, small um, trial and I like it. And so I decided to start to make the, the watchmaking school. And at the beginning, it was not really a, a passion for me. I, I like it. I like the job of a watchmaker, but it was not a, a real passion. And the passion came after the, the regular school. I make a, two specialization in watchmaking, also at, uh, still at school of watchmaking. One is a um, specialization in restoration of uh, antique watches and complications. And it's during its two years of, uh, of learnership at school. And during this period, uh, yeah, the passion came for me for, for watchmaking because uh, yeah, I really liked the historical part of, the watchmak of watchmaking, uh, the history of uh, different kinds of uh, escapements, of uh, different techniques, different mechanisms. And uh, yeah, there it, it started a passion for me for watchmaking. Then I make another specialization to be able to be um, a 3D designer uh, in watchmaking, to be able to, to develop and build um, movements uh, with a 3D program on the computer. And like that, I wanted to be the more complete as possible. So at the end of school, uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> all the, all the all the way to, to learn watchmaking at school, all the, the diploma uh, for watchmakers. And uh, you're right, after I was lucky to start at Parmigiani. After school, I wanted to, to make restoration of uh, antique watches and uh, it's quite rare to find a, a job in, uh, with restoration. And uh, Parmigiani had um, a very famous workshop for restoration. And I was very lucky to, to start to, to be uh, hired, hired by uh, Parmigiani. And mm. uh, yeah, I learned a lot there. And uh, okay. yeah. Right. Long, long, do you have a question? Yeah. Um, I'm just really curious. When we went to university, we have lectures where you sit in the lecture hall and, you know, we look at a screen and they teach stuff. And then we have seminars, which are like classroom. And then you, you bring your homework. So how do they teach watchmaking? Do you go back and read a chapter and then you have to do homework <laughs> and like answer questions? <laughs> you have to, you have the practical uh, courses. So every student have a bench, a watchmaker, watchmaker bench, and you learn the, all the practic practical uh, things. And you have also theoretical uh, uh, learnership about the techniques, the, watch, the mathematics, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, different, uh, uh, I don't know how to say, <laughs> the, the different lessons, but in uh, theory. But in, you know, in Switzerland, um, in a class, you don't have uh, 200 uh, <laughs> students. Yeah. So, in watchmaking, um, 
at school we maybe we were uh, 10 people wow. to learn watchmaking yeah that's cool so you can't then, really like bunk off and get yeah, people to sign you in it's yeah. like oh, yeah. I, barely made, I, I mean lecture theater i mean what's that in my first year like, <laughs> any lectures you know but I, i've got the question as well about the school um i believe like a lot of schools you know are affiliated with the conglomerates like swatch group or richmond group um you know what is the percentage would you say of the students your peers that actually go on to uh work in those like brands right to someone like you who wants to be a watch restorer yeah it's very a lot of of students of your right uh after school they go to big brands and uh but it's it was not interested me because um if you go at a, at a brand uh, like that, maybe you, you are lucky to, ask, to work for the complication uh, department, but uh, in fact, you assemble always the same piece. You know? <laughs> maybe you have a tourbillon, but you, all the days and all the, all the year, uh, you assemble the same tourbillon model, maybe. And uh, yeah, in restoration, what is very interesting, it's you, each piece you restore, it's completely different. So you learned a lot uh, because of that. But mm. it's, it, yeah, it was, I was lucky to, to have this opportunity to work uh, at this workshop because it's very rare. Do you, do you feel that because your path went watch, as a watch restorer and Parmigiani, you know, Michel Parmigiani himself is very famous, the fact that he was mm -hmm. a watch restorer as well, and then subsequently launched uh, yeah. Parmigiani, the brand, you know, compared to people that go and work in a brand and literally just do one job of the movement, you having more of a holistic experience gives you more confidence to set up your own brand yeah probably yeah i think i was lucky to yeah to learn a lot uh, about uh, yeah about the techniques uh, the evolution of the movements dif the different kind of uh, if you want to make a, i don't know this the system of uh, remontoir of uh, to wind up the uh, the watch if you have restored a lot of pocket watches in the past, you have different, a lot of ideas, different ideas how to make it. And uh, yeah, it's very important when you want to develop new things, new, new movements, to have all the knowledge of this, all these different uh, mechanics, make uh, uh, all these different systems. And uh, yeah, I think it helped to yeah, to launch your own, own brand. Mm. After you have a lot of all the, all the things outside of watchmaking, you, you don't learn uh, in restoration also. So it's uh, not easy <laughs> because uh, you are a craftsman. You don't know about the marketing things, about the design, about the, the sale. Uh, so... For this, you got to learn. Uh, I think we are on the same level. People from the brands or people from restoration, it's uh, hard to learn uh, by yourself.
<laughs> so when when you're at Parmigiani, was the brand not established? Was he still doing um, watch restoration? Yeah, they always keep the restoration workshop. Okay. Yeah, from the start, because it was important for Michel Parmigiani, because he started with the restoration. And uh, yeah, during all the history of the brand, they, they, they keep the restoration workshop. And okay. uh, yeah, we were working, um, so not on the Parmigiani pieces, we, we were working on the pieces from historical uh, collections uh, and very famous collections like the, the Sando collection uh, mm. where you have some Fabergé eggs, some uh, a lot of pocket mm. watches with uh, automatons and yeah, and different kind of uh, museums, the, also the Patek Philippe museums mm -hmm. uh, give us some pieces. Um, I want to ask, you famously created the tortoise um, table uh, table clock, right? And if you look at Parmigiani, he created a lot of the animal ones, like the horse, the dragon. Is there um, something with restoration where they just focus on animals? <laughs> like, why does the animal always come up? And a lot of people seem to like to choose animals with uh, four feet, like four legs, I mean. <laughs> like, why not try something very random? Kangaroo. A kangaroo, <laughs> like giraffe, or <laughs> yeah, you're right. Um, in fact, uh, in this restoration workshop, we restore pieces from the Sandoz collection, mm -hmm. and there were a lot of automatons and uh, a lot of um, so pocket watches with automatons inside, but also uh, pure automaton with no watch. And I restored this kind of uh, objects and. Uh, yeah, I fall in love with this kind of automatons because it was amazing. Mm -hmm. Inside, inside, there's a, a watchmaking movement. It's the same technique, uh, the same uh, know-how uh, uh, with watchmaking. But it's not to tell the time. It's to make move it, The mechanism is to make moving the the automaton. And uh, yeah, the first piece I restore it was a frog, a small frog. Or like that, very small, with in white, in uh, in gold, with uh, enamel engravings, uh, rubies for the the eyes, and uh, the mechani the the mechanism inside make moving the frog, moving the the two legs, mm -hmm. and even make the noise of the of the frog the qua qua, oh, and wow. it was yeah, and it was amazing. I, f I fall in love, yeah. I say, yeah, it's incredible. This uh, uh, and this object was made 200 years ago. It pieces from 1810, 1820, mm -hmm. and uh, it was watchmakers and very luxury objects. You know, uh, uh, all these objects were in gold with uh, lots of decoration of uh, enamel, and uh, yeah, I've, I was thinking. Uh, because in this workshop, um, we we welcome a lot of uh, collectors, uh, journalists, uh, and uh, we at at the restoration workshop we show the people uh, our job and the pieces uh, we restore. And uh, there was another automaton I restore. It was a caterpillar, a small caterpillar. That's cool. And I, I remember. I don't think Longo would like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Definitely not. And I always remember 
we have a lot of um, visits in the workshop. Uh, and I started the, the, the caterpillar on the table and everybody, the, everybody is smiling, the mm -hmm. eyes are very open. And, mm -hmm. and I said to myself, it's crazy, the emotion, it, uh, yeah. this kind of objects, uh, mm -hmm. uh, to say, um, uh, yeah, very strong emotion for the, for the people who see it. And, mm -hmm. uh, and it's hard to have this kind of emotion for a watch. So yeah. I was, I yeah. was thinking maybe uh, it's strange right now. Nobody is making uh, automatons like that, and that came my idea to make the uh, the tortoise uh, automaton. Mm. Yeah, I almost feel that um, you know we go on about watches being all handmade and like mechanical, and that is part of the romance of watches. But as you say, when you look at a uh, your tortoise or like even a frog that can croak. And then, you know, considering where the world is now, where a lot of that is now electronic, battery operated, mm -hmm. to know that that is completely um, mechanical has an even stronger feeling than a watch, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and plus you get the sound as well, right? A croaking sound. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> So I just want to take you back a little bit, like um, in your answer previously, you mentioned like the Sandos Foundation and, you know, they play a critical part in Michelle Parmigiani's story, but um, I'm not sure everybody actually knows what that is. Can you just explain what that is and why you were working on those pieces? In fact, it was uh, Edouard Marcel Sando. It's a guy who collects uh, in the 50s, I think, I'm not sure about the, the dates, but yeah, I think it was in the 50s. You collect uh, a lot of pocket watches and, uh, and automatons and Fabergé eggs. And he creates a very big collection. And uh, when he passed away, he, he gave a lot of, um, of pieces from this collection to the Museum of uh, Le Locle. Oh. In fact, it, this donation... Uh, um, was the foundation of the museum of Le Locle. They created the museum of uh, the watchmaking museum of Le Locle with this donation of a uh, lot of uh, objects. And um, Michel Parmigiani, when he started to be independent, he restored these objects uh, from the Sando collection for the museum of Le Locle. And then part of this collection is at the museum and another, another part is uh, private, is still private uh, in, in the foundation, the, the Sando Foundation. And Michel, Michel Parmigiani was working as a restorer for, for this, uh, this collection. And uh, the Sando's collection is a very big foundation. They have a um, lot of business, you know, in, in in the bank, in the pharma, pharma, pharmacy. pharmacy. And um, so the, one day the, the boss of the foundation the, all said to Michel, I'm very happy the work you are doing for, for the objects you restore, but maybe we can help you to, to launch your own brand. Mm. So they, they put the money to, to develop the Parmigiani brand. 
so it's a very close link with the uh, with the Sando Foundation mm -hmm. for this uh, for the for the collection of uh, watchmaking also. Yeah. Okay, so you were in a team that was essentially restoring a lot of these pieces. So how big is your how big was the team? You know that that has to manage two people. <laughs> two people. Yeah, we were two people. <laughs> Right. Yeah, so it's very small, and uh, but I was very lucky. The uh, the guy who was working was uh, working a lots of years before me, and he he teach me a lot of uh, things. Uh, yeah, I learned a lot of uh, yeah watchmaking skills. Uh, thanks for thanks to him. Mm. Okay, so it's, it sounds like a little bit, bit of a dumb question, but. So if you're doing this restoring thing and you can't figure something out, you know, you, you don't, you, you actually don't know. Can you do, can you then go running to Michelle and ask him? Cause yeah. he's like managing his brand. So yeah, is he just right exactly. next door? Oh, right. You do that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He, he did. Um, yeah. He, I don't know right now, but uh, when I was there, um, yeah, he was um, visiting the workshop uh, quite often to see, uh, of course, he knew on what pieces we are working uh, for, and uh, yeah, he still uh, gave us some uh, advice and uh, some watchmaking skills. Yeah, mm -hmm. I have a question. Um, one of our previous guests that we've had on the podcast, he um, bought a vintage uh, Breguet pocket watch that was restored by Michel Parmigiani. And at the time I did wonder, you know, these collectors, uh, what makes them um, decide to restore or service a watch, in this case, Breguet, with the restoration department of Parmigiani versus going to Breguet themselves and restoring it. Can you tell us a little bit of, you know, differences or, what might the collector be thinking when he or she is making that decision process? That's a good question. That's a good question. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure about the answer because <laughs> maybe <laughs> I think the the restoration the restoration workshop in Breguet it's not so old. During a lots mm. of years, there was no restoration workshop at Breguet. At Which is amazing if you think about it, like. Yeah. Breguet doesn't have a restoration yeah. <laughs> department. But you know, yeah. in the in the 80s, uh, yeah. Breguet was very small. Huh? The, there was not the producing uh, so many watches. And, uh, and Breguet themselves, yeah, Breguet themselves were also doing restoration at the very early stages, right? They were fixing other people's watches and clocks until, uh, yeah, which is, yeah. Because I asked think. the question, yeah, it does make you think. You think I what like Breguet's thinking. <laughs> yeah, and and I the um I wanted to ask that question because you would think right like only a collector who knows the real deal would know. Okay, I bought a Breguet pocket watch. I'm gonna restore it or service it. I'm not gonna go to Breguet. I'm gonna go to someone else who's actually you know knows the know how of doing that. Whereas you know if a um new collector comes along and just buys a pocket watch at auction, it, it would be very straightforward for them to think, okay, yeah, it's 
Brigue, I'll approach Brigue, but yeah. mm-hmm. they might not do as good of a job. Um, I don't know, maybe because I know, you know, um, at the early age of Parmigiani, when he was uh, independent, when he didn't yet uh, launch his brand, he was working for Breguet. Mm. <laughs> you, know, you know, they made Breguet made some pocket watches, some replica of, uh, of really, uh, Breguet yeah. pocket watches yeah. in the past. And it's Parmigiani who developed these pocket watches for, for, for Breguet. I didn't know that. Yeah. It's, um, and it's, yeah, very beautiful movement mm. they create with, uh, with the automatic uh, winding, mm. you know, the famous Breguet uh, automatic winding. Uh, so I don't know, maybe you approach uh, Breguet to restore the pocket watch and Breguet was not uh, able to restore it. And they mm. maybe they say, oh, yeah, I know this guy, Michel Parmesan, <laughs> who restore uh, very well. <laughs> mm. it's a, I think it's a very interesting question because we got, I got a question. Actually, all three of us got a question during the week about a guy. He wanted to send his vintage Movado in, right? And um, something wrong with the hands. Okay, mm-hmm. the movement in the hands. And uh, the brand said, yeah, we can do it, but we will refinish the dial as well, right? Like, um, and you don't have a choice on it, you know? So if you send it I... to be repaired, you expect to refinish dial. And you also hear about the same thing with other brands, like you send it in for one thing and then, you know, maybe a crown is replaced um, without, you know, even you being aware of it and they tell you afterwards. Um, yeah. What's your, what's your take on that? You know, did, like with your, when you're restoring these things, which are antiques, mm-hmm. which parts do you touch and which parts don't you touch? Of course you you try to to keep all the original uh, things, you, all the original uh, parts, and uh, sometimes you don't have the the, the choice. Uh, you if a, if a wheel is broken, you got to replace it. And uh, what is very interesting in restoration of antique watches, not vintage. A lot of vintage you can if a if a wheel is broken, you you can find the. The component and uh, just mm. replace it, but a pocket watch from two hundred years ago, you don't have the mm. <laughs> the spare parts, so you you got to make the wheel by yourself. And uh, mm. of course, you respect you you respect the know how during at the time what they what they knew about watchmaking in two hundred years ago, and to be able to make the components like the original so so yeah it's very important to keep all the a maximum of components uh, from uh, from the original movement and uh, mm. what about a no, dial and, like, when do you yeah, know to dial, touch a dial when when do you think a, a dial needs freshening or do you ever not freshen it up it's complicated the dial <laughs> because um of course, if it's enamel, it's uh, mm. quite clear. The choice is quite clear. Uh, the condition is good, but if it's broken, it's it's broken. But uh, but the dial from a vintage metallic uh, dial, you, it's difficult to have the. If you want to remake a dial, you cannot because you 
you ha you got to make the uh, I don't know what to say in English the the inscription with the ink uh, on the dial the the printing of the of the dial and uh, but of course it's always a question to ask for the for the collector mm. uh, what do you want to make with your watch or what do you want to to keep this uh, dial in this state uh, uh, I can I can just clean the the dial but it will still uh, have this uh, vintage uh, uh, aspect mm. or do you want to replace it uh, but you know your watch uh, will be totally different mm. Mm. but yeah it's the I think the most important is to communicate with the with the client with the, the collector mm. right but to me I, yeah I prefer to keep the dial in the original uh, state even mm. if there's a lot of marks of uh, or it is uh, dirty or um, are there right. a, any uh, kind of particular type of collectors by region say asia versus europe that prefer different things yeah i don't know <laughs> uh, <laughs> because you know i don't have so much experience in the vi vintage watches mm. in, the, in mm. the restoration of vintage watches I have more, uh, most of uh, my career, I work on the antique pocket watches and it's, mm -hmm. it's easier to, rest to restore the dials because uh, it's often in good state and it's in enamel. You know, the mm -hmm. enamel, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, always the same color for hundreds of years. Huh? <laughs> mm -hmm. it, don't, it don't move. Yeah. Mm. right right well you're probably thinking when are we actually going to talk about your brand <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. you know, we've been talking about parmigiani and brigade right <laughs> yeah. what i will say is you know the very fact you're talking about those brands you know puts you in the same category but we are going to talk <laughs> about you um how long did you work at um parmigiani before you started having ideas of setting up your brand the ID came very late because um, I was very happy at Parmigiani. Mm -hmm. uh, I was enjoying my job, learning a lot of, uh, in watchmaking. Uh, but yes, uh, it was a little... Um, for the years, uh, it started to, in my head, to, oh, maybe I want to create my own piece because... Restoration is very good, but it's not creative at all. So you don't um, you don't create things in restoration. You uh, you got to keep the original part. So you don't have create a lot of creativity in this job. And uh, yeah, I started to draw. I I always draw some mechanism or some things, and. Uh, yeah, I wanted to create my own piece. First, my idea was to to create just for me, not not to to launch uh, my brand and to become uh, independent. I wanted to to create an object, but maybe maybe I will do during the night after the job, uh, and little by by little, uh, yeah. So first, I um, designed all the movements of the tutorials on a 3D computer. 
I was still working at Parmigiani. I was working on this uh, conception during the night after, after the job. And then I finished the, the 3D conception. So all the piece were, was in the computer. And I said, okay, what I want to, what I want to do right now. Um, and uh, yes, and I want to make this piece. And uh, of course it takes a lot of time to make all the components, uh, finishing, finishing the, of the movements. Uh, and I uh, say, okay, maybe I will, I will try uh, to, to launch, uh, to, to start as an independent and to create this, uh, this first uh, unique piece. And uh, so sadly I leave Parmigiani, but it was for a good, uh, a good uh, reason. And uh, yeah, it was in 2012. Mm. I started as independent and uh, I directly started to create this uh, automaton tutorials. Okay. So I think you mentioned earlier that the reason why you started with an automaton is um, because of your experience restoring and your passion for them. But why did you pick a tortoise? Because it was, um, I really like it's a, a strong symbolic of uh, longevity and stability. And right. it's symbolic that represents me uh, very good. So I'm, I'm, I'm a quite, uh, uh, I'm quite, I'm not uh, so <laughs> expert. I don't know how to say. <laughs> are, you, are you pedestrian as well? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> are you slow? <laughs> I'm not slow, but I, I like to think that to think a lot about what I make. Uh, there's a lot of reflection before I make some, um, before I act the, the things. So I'm quite a stable person. person. <laughs> so that's symbolic that represents me. Okay. So how long were you um, from conception to actually producing a one that was ready to sell? How long did that process take? I think um, the the 3D conception maybe took me one year, full one year, oh, but it okay. was not full time. It was uh, only the only the night, <laughs> and uh, then um, I make uh, I work a full year on the on the movement to make the movement and the finishings, and maybe we can count uh, half a year uh, for the um, all the outside parts you know there's a, a different craftsmen who work on it uh, an enameliste uh, engraver uh, gem setting so yeah maybe it's two two hundred year uh, two and a half year of work on the piece because you know mm. all the movement is it was the concept of this piece it's all the all the movement is totally handmade so no mm. cnc machines so it's totally made by with traditional machines uh, so it yeah it took me a full year to produce only one movement which is mm. crazy <laughs> yeah yeah um, where do you get these traditional machines from uh i i bought it uh, yeah there's some um, uh on internet, you can find some some machines. Or mm. here, of course, here in La Chaux de Fonds, there's a lot yeah. of uh, there's um, 
uh, shops who who sold uh, who, who sell uh, vintage machines, mm, and I cool. bought it from there. Yeah. I have a question. I'm looking at the tortoise right now. How many components uh, does it require? I don't remember, <laughs> but <laughs> I, think, I think it's but two, roughly. It's three hundred and fifty. Something okay, like that. Yeah. and all of them were hand finished, no CNC machine. Which yeah, yeah. Com- single component would you say was the most difficult to finish? Was it in the exterior or the interior? It was not a com- uh, make a component. So it was more the calculation of the speed mm. first time because uh, it's something difficult and it's something very. A thing I really like with automatons, it's you don't have um, reference. Uh, uh, you don't have examples in in a watch. When you build a watch, you know oh, this wheel got to make one rotation per hour. This wheel got to make one rotation per minute, and you know all the calculation for for that. But in automatons, it's totally free, so you don't have rules to be. To, or if you want to make a tortoise running, you got to calculate like that. So, so that's difficult because you you don't have any example of that. But it's also very creative. So, mm-hmm. and first, I, so I I make all the movement and the 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 advance of the tortoise was too slow, and I say wow. Maybe I, I make a mistake. <laughs> Maybe I want. I got to stable. Yeah. <laughs> I got to make all the all the train wheels again, and uh, yeah, finally I made two wheels. Uh, I remake two wheels to modify the the gear train to mm. to have to have the right uh, speed of the tortoise. Mm. <laughs> and 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 how many of uh, the tortoises have you have you made so far? Because they take so long to make. Only one. Yeah. Only one. Yeah, it's a unique piece. Would so, would you consider making more in the future, or you'd want to try another animal, maybe a kangaroo? I know you I, mentioned two feet, and that was yeah, the first thing that I thought of. <laughs> I had a lot of ideas about <laughs> different automatons, but. Mm. To be honest, it was not a success for me during that time. You know, mm. I, I finished the tortoise, and uh, you know, <laughs> nobody's no, nobody's know me, know me, knew me, mm. and it's a very expensive piece, of course. Mm. Uh, mm. So I didn't sell it at the beginning, and uh, so it was difficult for me. And uh, mm. then I started to make watches, which was uh, easier for me to. Mm. To live with my business, uh, mm. so I decided to keep the the, the automaton tortoise, and mm. yeah, it was. I think it was crazy in the in a hindsight. Yeah, you mean looking back? Is that what you're trying yeah. to say? Yeah, looking back, it was crazy to make an automaton for for my first uh, for the first piece. big piece. But you yeah. know, Raul, you, you mentioned before, like one of the first questions we asked. Um, about your background and you said you know I've kind of fallen back in love with watchmaking after you went to school you didn't really love it 
uh, wholeheartedly before. And looking back at it, it's it wasn't until after you went to school and then maybe working at Parmigiani um, did you find that spark again. So, but I think it, everything makes kind of more sense in hindsight. Um, that was what drove you to kind of like you created the tortoise during the nights when after you came home from work or something that was was spoke to you and even though it didn't work from a business perspective but like how cool is that that your first big piece wasn't really a pocket watch like you were familiar with working at or a wristwatch it was something that like not many people are aware um I think it's I think quite you should bring it back. Yeah, I, yeah, it is very, very, very. I think it's emotional. romantic in the way you actually get to keep your first piece. You yeah. know, and a lot of watchmakers well, have to sell their piece, right? Yeah. But so right now, I'm happy. To, yeah. Yeah. Right now, right now, I'm happy to have it uh, because it's always when I make uh, exhibitions or, or when when collectors come here in the workshop. To be able to show this piece, it's yeah, it's crazy. It's uh, does it have a name? It's amazing. Yeah, we call we call him, we call her Caroline. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's a member of the family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have a question. Um, <laughs> like, if you run a company and you're about to hire staff, you might create this thing called SOP, right? So, like. Um, follow this manual what to do right so like with this tortoise did you have like a manual like okay this is how you make the next piece you go and make these 300 plus pieces one by one and then now go and like like an ikea booklet like instruction manual do you have that hang on before i all answers right i've got to get this in like honestly when when jack just asked him yeah it looked like he didn't really it like it was like don't ask me how many pieces man because like i, I was spending nights doing those pieces on like, time <laughs> looking at those pieces and I, when you were saying about the speed i would go nuts if if like to adjust the speed i had to like cut the, the wheel <laughs> instead of having 13 teeth 12 teeth <laughs> you know like oh my god i mean nuts but sorry yeah i interject um please answer Longman's question yeah i don't have instruction for each component but i have a of course i have a technical uh, drawings so each component to be able to produce the component you got to make a for each component, a technical uh, drawing with with uh, all the dimensions you need to be able to make the the components by by hand. Mm. It's different with CNC right now. With CNC machines, you don't really need all this dimension on the technical drawing mm. because you start from a from a three D file. Mm. on the computer you put on the computer for the machine so you don't need to have all the dimensions for the uh, producing the the components Mm -hmm. but if you are doing by by hand this component you need to have on these technical drawings Mm. all the information and dimensions to be able to make it by by hand Mm. so i have for each component say uh a technical drawing to be able to produce the the components. Mm. I have a question um, before we move on. Um, so, are all the the current 
production pieces, what percentage of components or casework are handmade and what components are CNC? For, for which uh, piece? Uh, like the other um, wristwatches that you're... Sure, let's say the RP1. Yeah, uh, so maybe in the chronologic way. Sure. After, after the automaton, I make um, uh, the Soberly Onyx watch. Yeah. And it was limited to 10 pieces. Mm-hmm. It was in 2015. And for this watch, I started with a base movement, a vintage base movement from uh, SEMA. Mm-hmm. SEMA was a brand in the 50s, 60s, here in close to La Chaux de Fonds. And they produce a movement. Uh, and I started with a base uh, movement from SEMA. Mm-hmm. And I totally refinished uh, all the movements. Uh, and I'm, for this watch, I make some components, like, for example, the balance wheel, the balance mm-hmm. bridge I make from scratch. But uh, yeah, the rest of the movement was existing parts that mm-hmm. I totally refinished. Uh, but for the RP1, RP1, mm. for this is my, it's totally my own movement. So, mm-hmm. so I have no base. Uh, I make every component uh, from scratch. Uh, from scratch. Except the maybe the rubies, the of course, the, of course, the main springs. Yeah, of course. Okay, because I was I was watching an interview by um, a very famous independent watchmaker, and um, he mentioned that when he was developing a new model for a watch that was in quite high demand, it would have been very easy for him to just do the drawing, put it into the machine, and then CNC all the parts and just assemble and sell. But I'm curious, what is the difference to a watchmaker like yourself when developing a watch to say, no, I'm not going to do that. I want to hand finish all the components myself. I don't really want to do the quote unquote shortcut, if you will, of CNC uh, machining. Is it all in the romanticism of watchmaking? What is it? In fact, it it depends a lot of the components. If, um, for example, for the main plate, for the bridges, all the flat components, you can mill with a CNC machine. And uh, of course, it's, uh, it's a lot more efficient to make mm-hmm. with a CNC machine than uh, by hand. Because by hand, you, maybe you work during uh, two days only for make a main plate. And with a CNC machine, uh, in three hours, you can produce 20 main plates. Mm-hmm. And... Um, but for example, for the, the, the pinions, the wheels, all the round uh, components, it's, um, it's a very big cost to, to adjust the machine, the, the CNC machine to produce this component. It's very difficult and it takes a lot of mm-hmm. time. So the cost is very high. So when you produce one pinion, with a CNC, it's more efficient to, to produce uh, 2,000 pinions. Mm. It, it's the same cost to produce one pinion or 200 uh, pinions. So if you want to produce uh, 100 
of watch you it's easier to produce with a cnc but if you mm. want to produce only 10 watch watches it's no sense to produce uh, 2000 pinions uh, mm. with the cnc machines mm. so for the moment i'm for the rp1 rp1 i work with a kind of mix I, I right now I use CNC machine for the main plates and the mm-hmm. bridges, but for the pinions and the wheels I make uh, by hand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, you talked about earlier how you made this automaton, and you know it's very expensive. Um, it didn't sell. You know, ten years now and. Well, I think it's over 10 years and you're getting recognition for your RP1, you know, quite worldwide. How difficult has that 10 years been? You know, as, as, as clients, as, as people, as watch collectors, we always say, you know, independent watchmaking is tough life. None of us have ever been an independent watchmaker. You know, we all say it, but it's not like we, we really know what we're talking about. Like, how difficult is it to keep going? Uh... It, it is it is difficult <laughs> it was difficult because uh yeah like i said the tutorial was not a success in uh, for my business but i think it was a success in in visibility because a lot of people talked about these tutorials uh, 10 years ago and after i launched the um, the wristwatch and uh, a lot of people knew me uh, by the tutorials for uh, mm. But it was not also a very big success like, uh, like uh, right now. But uh, I, I were lucky to always, I always make a restoration in my, in my life. Mm. So I had uh, some collectors, uh, good clients for museums or private collectors who gave me uh, pocket watches to restore. So I was a bit able to leave. Uh, it was okay. <laughs> mm. uh, financially, it was okay to, to keep going and to, to, to develop my, my brand. But um, yeah, I think you got to be very... I think a lot of other people will... Uh, uh, I don't know how to say. <laughs> uh, quit. Mm. Give up. Yeah, give, give, yeah, give up. Uh, but I'm quite uh, uh, obstinate. I don't know how to say. Stubborn. Uh, yeah. Stubborn. Yeah. Obstinate. Yeah. Exactly. I didn't say that. You did. Okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. Mm. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I wanted to create new pieces, new pieces to. But uh, yeah, it was difficult, but it was okay uh, because I had restoration. Uh, mm. that's still very very impressive to, to not give up on one's dream after 10 years and you know if you read that and you just see the number 10 doesn't quite having the doesn't quite have the impact as if you actually did the 10 years yourself right yeah, um, yeah that's right so I, I think that's incredibly uh admirable yeah thank you <laughs> um but you are famous now for the rp1 um and it returns, you know, what's famous about it is used as a detent escapement, right? Um, in your own words, like, why has this piece got the acclaim, the critical acclaim it has, you know? And what made you 
come up with the idea of making a watch returning to the detent escapement? Still with restoration <laughs> because uh, I restore a lot of pocket watches with uh, this escapement or marine chronometers. And it's so beautiful to see it. And uh, I enjoy a lot uh, when I was working on these uh, pieces. So and I, knew, I knew it was a challenge uh, to put a detent escapement in a wristwatch. So I don't like easy things. <laughs> so I, decided, I choose the difficulty. And uh, yeah, it was a challenge for me to, to, to design and to adjust the, this escapement in a wristwatch. Mm. But in, yeah, when you see the, the, the escapement moving, uh, it's, so, yeah, it's so beautiful to see it. Mm. Why is the Detton escapement considered one of the Holy Grail escape, escapements? Right now, it's more theoretical. Mm. At that time, um, 200 years ago, it was the best escapement because it's a free escapement. Uh, you don't have, a, uh, you have very few friction on the balance wheel. And that's we we're trying to, to achieve in an escapement to have the less friction uh, for, the, for the balance wheel. So the detent escapement is uh, in this way, it's uh, much better than the Swiss lever escapement. Mm -hmm. But uh, of course you have some disadvantage. Uh, you have a direct impulsion, impulsion from the escape wheel on the balance wheel, which is very good. But you have it only once in per oscillation of the balance wheel. Mm. So, if you have a, a perturbation, a shock during uh, one one uh, rotation of the balance wheel, it can perturb uh, the the accuracy. But um, that's why we it's a perfect escapement for table clocks, marine mm -hmm. chronometers. Uh, but more challenging for wristwatch here. Yeah. Mm. But um, I use a uh, I use a special uh, system to protect the movement from the shock. The shock. Mm. Yeah, and uh, it works uh, perfectly well. But but if you compare with a Swiss lever, it's not. Uh, <laughs> It's not so, it's not better. It's, uh, mm, mm. you can compare, it's very comparable. You, you have the same accuracy with detent escapement or Swiss lever escapement. Mm. But it, it, it's it harder, more, isn't it? It's harder, more difficult to put a detent escapement into yeah, a wristwatch than course, a Swiss yeah. lever, right? Although the, yeah. Yeah, because you have a lot of uh, adjustment, different uh, the tension of the springs, Mm. yeah it's quite a nightmare for a watchmaker to adjust to be honest <laughs> but it's mm. uh when it's when it's adjusted it's uh working perfectly yeah mm. okay and what what is the production of these kind of pieces very wow. few because i still i'm mm. still working alone I'm, I'm alone at a workshop so i can produce maybe four to five watches a year mm. um and would you consider expanding so you could do more? Not for this model. So right now I stop the the orders for this model because uh, yeah, I'm I'm lucky it was a big success for me. I'm very happy. 
but I don't want to produce this model all my, all my life. You know, mm. uh, I want to keep time to develop other. I have a lot of ideas to to make uh, to producing to create uh, new new models. So I want to to keep time to produce other models. Mm. So the next one, maybe I will uh, increase a little bit the, the production. Um, yeah, I'm still working. I'm already working on the RP2, which mm. be, which uh, maybe I will increase a little bit the production with maybe the help of uh, one or two watchmakers at the workshop. It really sounds like you took the lessons of the automaton, right? And then finally got there with the RP1 and found something that was unique to the market and the right right price, right, you know, right demand. And that's why it's a success. It's almost like you could tell in a way, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think it's a crazy moment for independence right now. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I, I was... Um, Thinking it 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 is right now. It's the RP one is the good. Uh, it's the good piece for me. It's uh, my. So every, what is the, what is the waiting list for that piece now? Like I know you cut the waiting list. This yeah, podcast is called the waiting list. So I need to yeah, ask that question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right now, the last uh, orders it's uh, three years, more than three years. That's not too bad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But these pieces are, you can actually say the first RP1s were completely made by you. Exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that's so that, a difference, I think. That yeah. adds a lot of exclusivity. So yeah. I take it that if one of us wanted one, we, we can't get one. <laughs> <laughs> He's not saying anything. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. We can wait for the RP2. Yeah, off air, off air. Okay. Will be amazing, also. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so funny, right? Um, okay, the next question. Uh, you're an art lover, right? Um, you're an art lover as well. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what correlations are there with watches? And did you incorporate any of your love for art into your own watch design? And could you explain the design philosophy, you know, the dial side of it, um, of the RP1, you know, because you have a very distinctive blue. I, I think it looks great, by the way. Like, I think um, yeah. you've used one color and a design, which is very simplistic because I think it's petite seconds, right? And you know it's your watch. <laughs> Just, yeah. yeah. You know, that's very difficult yeah. to achieve. So, yeah, please... Yeah, tell us. Yeah, yeah. I always uh, love art and architecture, also and design. And um, but you know, I, I didn't make uh, design studies or things like that. So, but it's very important for me to to design my own dials and to make all the design of my movement uh, of the total watch. And I work a lot for for this design. And, and yeah, I really like the the architecture from 1950s. The, mm, Art Deco. But yeah, a little bit later than Art Deco. I really like Art Deco also. But the, the Bauhaus movement, oh. uh, yeah, the art from 1950s and the architecture also. And here in La Chaux-de-Fonds, we have a, a star 
called Le Corbusier, you know, the famous architect. Mm. Uh, and he was born in La Chaux de Fonds, and there's a few houses in, he made in La Chaux de Fonds. And uh, he, he, I really like uh, his work, uh, he, the work he did, the houses. It was so modern during, it was mm. in, the, yeah, in the 1930, 40, but it's so modern for, for that time. And uh, Le Corbusier, he developed uh, a palette of colors in, in 19, 1931 and 1959. Uh, and it's a palette of different colors. Uh, and each colors fit very well with uh, each other. Mm. And uh, the blue color for the dial, it's inspired by uh, one of the color he developed. Mm. And it's, uh, yeah, I really like, uh, like you said, Daniel, uh, I really like the minimalist uh, design. I, I like clean designs, but with a lot of uh, details. More you mm. look at the dial, more you can find some details, some uh, subtleties. Mm. But if you look the watch, you say, oh, wow, it's a clean, uh, it's very simplest, uh, very clean design. Mm. And this mm. is the same for architecture. I feel like uh, the houses, it looks very simple, but uh, more you see the, the details, the construction, the, the shape, the proportions, more you find some, uh, yeah subtilities and uh, yeah that's mm. my inspiration to create mm. uh, to create the design of the, of my watches yeah. the blue you've used it's so eye-catching but non-offensive you know it's yeah. it's not sharp but at the same time it it's just got that perfect balance um and the the canvas the dark can it's just a great to, to really show off that color mm -hmm. oh, yeah. thank you yeah the textures yeah, are great. Yeah, the textures are really ah, good. Yeah, yeah. yeah same. You have a lot of details. The the surface is very. It's a we call the giclage. It's a mm. wet uh, sandblast, mm. but you it's highlighted by the the bevel is a is a polish. So you have a very good contrast with the surface matte surface with the angles, the bevel, the polish. Mm. I think it's also interesting because you chose to put the four screws like in the center of the dial, like instead of hiding mm. it. But you don't actually mm. notice it at first. But then actually when you look at it, you're like, oh, it works. It's, it's not mm. annoying at all. It just works, yeah. Yes, Very it's nice. to add uh, some technical thing because the inspiration for the watch, for this watch is uh, very technique. Mm -hmm. The detent escapement. Mm -hmm. It was used for the, for the chronometers, uh, marine chronometers, yeah. and also the, the choice of the regulator time display mm -hmm. on the mm -hmm. dial. It was also for the technical uh, clocks, uh, mm -hmm. the pre precision clocks of, uh, from the 20th century. Mm -hmm. so it was, uh, yeah, to me, it was a sense uh, no, consistent to have uh, some technical de uh, details mm -hmm. like the like the screws or screws on the dials and the screws also for the lugs on the, on mm -hmm. the on the case. 
it is one of those where like yeah you see it simplistic but obviously a lot of thought has gone into that mm. and then when you're creating the movement you can uh, plan it on the machine and i know you can do the same for the dial but with the dial you are almost limitless on what you could do with the dial right so how many how long did that take how many designs did you throw out you know before you're actually happy when do you say stop you know this is perfect yeah. you know that's because the most... you never do a lot of people sometimes they over design something right that's the most difficult <laughs> it's to decide when i when i uh, when you say stop it's okay right mm. now because uh, yeah personally how I work is it takes me a lot of time because first I I design um, on a paper with a with a pencil with a pen and uh, I start with with a lots of lots of ideas and then I maybe this one is good but you got to rework the proportion and uh, and after when I'm happy with the paper I start with a 3D computer. To, mm. to design it but it's often it's always uh, uh, to say, I have to say um, you ask yourself maybe I can modify this or I can modify this and uh, yeah take hours and hours mm. <laughs> to, to have uh, to have the per- perfect idea and uh, yeah it's difficult to say right now I'm happy I will leave it and Mm. I will never touch the, the design. <laughs> mm. Well, but it's a thing I like to do. It's yeah, clearly. I enjoy. Clearly, to, you like to, to take your it. time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but that is. It's yeah. it's funny because you're saying like with the tortoise, you weren't happy with the speed, so then you have to go back to adjust <laughs> the speed and everything. And then you were talking about the escapement, you weren't happy, and then you have to go back and it's just. So it's a lot of precision, a lot of adjusting, but you don't mind it. Like, um, so you definitely took some, I don't know, like, is that part of your personality? You're just not a, um, like, you're just not a, like, in a rush kind of person. Uh, a what? Sorry. In a rush kind of person. So you're very zen. Yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's, I don't know if it's, it's also very Swiss. A lot of Swiss mm. people are like that, I think. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Well, I actually want to finish the, um, in this you know, main interview with the tortoise and just say, I don't know, I'm just listening to your story and I find it almost ironic that you started with a tortoise, which is, we all know, a slow-moving animal. But you know, we know, all know the tortoise and the hare and the tortoise got to the finish line. 10 years, you know, I'm not saying you are at your finish line, but you're at your first point of, you know, you got there, right? Yeah, so yeah. I just want to congratulate you on, on your piece. You know, uh, I find your thank story you, you. very inspiring. Um, and I hope that the audience has a much better understanding of your brand and you as a person. Mm. Thank you very much. It's all right. Yeah. <laughs> Right, so we now go on to the reverso <clears throat> round, Raul, and you've prepared questions for us. So please go for it. Okay, so yeah, I have a question. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're the first one who actually wrote it down on paper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So why do you think 
because right now independent watchmaking is very hype. Mm. And why do you think the independent watchmaking is so strong at the moment? And do mm. you think it will continue or? All right, I'll go. I'll take that question. That means one of you has to take the rest. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Daniel, you sore loser. <laughs> I just think it. Can I answer that? Okay, yeah, I can. Yeah. I'm taking it. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, I think that um, I think the independent watchmakers have a have an opportunity because the big brands have went have gone. A lot of the ones that are really desirable have gone for a model where it's so exclusive. You know, like a lot of people can't get pieces. They still have a desire to own great watches, and. Um, you know, what has happened is it kind of forced people to look elsewhere, you know, even VIPs, they can't get all the pieces they want, right? Mm -hmm. They still want to buy. And so they do look elsewhere and then they start to educate themselves even more and realize, actually, this is not only a better product, mm -hmm. you know, or I say better in inverted commas, right? Because that's subjective, but also far more exclusive right it's almost like those brands have been as you the main brands have been so hyped that there is a definitely a, a niche of collector that doesn't desire that in their collection yeah mm -hmm. it's almost like going to those brands is not cool anymore and it's cool now to be an independent brand right um in terms of your question on how long it's going to last i think you're very clever to um limit your waiting list to three years and i hope it does stay at three years um because that interest in the watch you know once you start pushing that time a collector if he's forgotten when he put the deposit down and when he's getting the watch i think there's a problem because he's also forgetting you as a brand right mm -hmm. and um you know that's a fine balance that independent watchmakers have to make you know when do they get too greedy and take on orders right, that they can't really realistically fulfill. And now everything's hyped, right? Even independent watch brands. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think I was talking to Jacqueline about this. If the price isn't going for a premium on a secondary market for an independent watch, right, the desire to own one will definitely drop, right? Yeah. yeah. Are you really, can, can you predict with a crystal ball that four years, five years later, yeah. that is still going to be the case? Because if it isn't, right, a lot of these people right now, it's a no-brainer. I can put a deposit down because if when I get the watch, I'm invested in something that at least holds value or make me money, right? But if it's going to lose me money, am I still going to fulfill that order? So I think independent watchmakers, I think it's great that you have that interest, but I think you have to focus on the service. You know, these people that like these things, they do value service. You know, and if, if you don't, it's hard to really buy into the brand. They're, look, they're buying it in for you, right? You as Mr. Ryle Padges. Yeah, if you yeah. can't offer the service, that trust is somewhat betrayed. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Another thing is, is the people behind the brand. You know, it's like, I feel like with bigger brands now, what you're buying is acknowledgement. You, you wear a identifiable piece and people know, okay, that's a Rolex, that's a paddock, whatever. With independent brands, it's like if you know who actually like the person and the names behind the brand, then that's a different type of acknowledgement. Mm -hmm. 
So, I mean, we can never talk like we are talking to you with the other brands, you know, because they're not really making the watches themselves. So it's that extra personal touch to um, an emotional object, um, which you just can't get anywhere else, which, you know, again, following up to Daniel, um, what he said, but once you make the waiting list so long, people forget about your brand identity, about what you're doing. And it just becomes um, almost like a burden, like, okay, I need to chase it up. I need to chase it up. And that's what you are seeing with a lot of independent watch brands. I personally um, am on the waiting list for a few and it just keeps on getting delayed, delayed, delayed. And it's um, Mm -hmm. the only thing holding me to the order is the fact that I committed and the original like vision I had of the design and, and the, the watchmaker, but it is, it is very difficult. Um, I think in some certain situations, Jack, do you, do you feel like, you know, that positive feeling you had for like that watch when you initially wanted it, you know, you're most excited when you put the order down Mm. and now you kind of have more of a negative frustration or you still have that balance where I really, really want it. It varies case by case. I don't know if this would make sense, but for one of the watches I ordered, uh, which is Italia di Chronometri, Raul, um, I'm fine with waiting because I know that the scene, the watch scene in Barcelona or Spain for watchmaking isn't that large. And I know that they're doing great things and they're trying to make their own movements. So I don't want to rush a brand. Like, for example, Frotsham took 15 years to develop their own first wristwatch. Like, who are you to say, okay, you're taking way too long, right? They're happy when they're happy. And from a client perspective or someone who admires what they're doing, we're not in a position to rush them because they're in creation mode. Like, who are you to say that you need to rush, you need to move faster, right? So they take their time. But then with the other more developed independent brands, not going to name names, but they're already very established in the scene. They know what they're doing and they're fully capable of fulfilling orders to a certain amount. But once they extend that and move on to other projects for financial reasons or business development, then you start to think, okay, what are you doing here? Like, you're fully capable of fulfilling the promised date, but you're delaying it because you've taken on all these other projects that came much later. And you're just making clients wait five, six years, as opposed to the original promise too. So that's different. It varies case by case. Um, Do you think it's lack of focus then? The lack of focus. Definitely. Lack of focus, taking on too many projects. And just, I, I'm a very simple person. I believe in doing not maybe one thing at a time, but having a very, you know, focused vision and, and, and trying to make a thing work before moving on to other projects. But I understand as a business it makes more sense to do other things. I just, 
I'm more patient with Atelier de Chronometrie as opposed to, you know, some of the other brands. So it does vary case by case. Yeah. Okay. Right, Ryle, your next question. Yeah, next question. I'm absolved now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can answer the three, yeah, three of you. <laughs> what is the most important to you when you are acquiring a watch? The design, the finishings, the complication, uh, dimension, proportion, aesthetic mm -hmm. of the watch. We shouldn't have called it reverso round. We should have called it market research round. For right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think all three of us can answer this. Who wants to go first? Yeah, long, long. You haven't said anything. You go okay, first. Okay, fine. Um, Sorry, I just put you up there. <laughs> okay, I think it has to... Okay, initially, first reaction is a feeling. I know it sounds so cheesy, but it's a feeling, right? Because a lot of, I mean, if I look at your watch, you have a really good size, right? Like 38.5 is quite acceptable for most people. So I wouldn't say size is a determining factor. It's usually a moment when you go, whoa, you feel something. And me and Dan have said this lots of times when you, after you have seen a lot of watches, you kind of grow numb. So you lose that feeling now, even when new releases, you kind of see something new and you're like, oh, okay, it's nice, but that's it. And you just kind of forget about it. But so one, if you can still remember the watch many weeks from the first time you've seen it and you can't stop thinking about it, there's a high chance it's, it sits differently, like in your collection or you feel something different. And then Secondly, I'll look at just obviously dial design, dial and strangely, so dial story. So I mean, story, when I say story, I mean, history, dial history, uh, movement, but actually lastly, size, as much as like size should matter a lot. I'm actually someone that is so ignorant to how bad it might look on me, because for me, it's a very personal thing. It's what I see when I look down. So it might look crazy from someone else's like angle, but as long as when I look down, I feel like, whoa, it looks great on me like this. <laughs> like, okay, sure. Is that um, why you're interested in the uh, the music AP? No, I knew you were going to say something stupid. I Are you serious? Say, no, I'm not. But I just told Dan today. Oh, that thank I, God. I asked to go look at the the music one tomorrow and how I'm going to express my, my kind of excitement. <laughs> I want to sell all my APs. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, definitely. I will have to say feeling and then aesthetics. Um, size is definitely not up there for me. Yeah. Okay. Zach, ladies first. This makes you think, what is AP thinking? Releasing that watch. Thinking long, like, long, 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 love this. Who's the, no, just, okay. First of all, they already released a Panther one. It can get worse. So <laughs> <laughs> leave with a bang Francois can leave and leave his mark yeah for me um I would almost leave um before it was size um but now I don't really mind it that much complication wise also really don't mind because I I don't discriminate like any complicated, I love uh, simple, simple three-hander, even two-hander to perpetual calendar chrono, whatever. Um, for me, it's always about the 
yeah, feeling, but but it's the aesthetics that drives the feeling, right? So so um, dial is the face of the watch, and I absolutely really really resonate with what you said earlier, which is you want something simple, but the more you look at it, you discover details. It, it it's not just the process of discovery per se. It's more about oh, the watchmaker actually thought of all these things. It's like reading poetry. You don't know what the poet means, but you can decipher how you might interpret and then think, okay, did he or she meant to write this or use this word instead of that word choice? So it it becomes a very joyful experience. Um, And also, like, I, I like it when... Because I, for, for me personally, I love photography. And what's fun about photography is you can shoot the same subject, but in different lightings, it totally changes how it looks. Mm-hmm. And um, from a dial perspective, I love it when a dial plays with the light mm-hmm. and how it changes. You know, in certain angles, you notice one shade. And then with a slight turn of the wrist, you notice two tone. And then one is more reflective than the other. Um, and that's when I feel like you're really having fun with your watch because if you, if you don't wear it, you won't be, and, and, and wear it under different settings or different, I don't know, locations or environments, you won't be able to notice how it changes despite staying the same. So aesthetics, um, case design, I don't like too complicated finishing, I would say, is something of, um, even though it's not necessary, but everybody is kind of looking for good finishing these days. Um, it's in the nuance. So so definitely those three, and then maybe size or complication. Yeah. Mm. For me, I'm very, very similar to Jack's answer. Um, I would say, though, it is difficult for me i can't see a watch as complete if the movement finishing isn't there you know mm-hmm. like the movement is part of the watch right and we see and long long mentioned it like a couple of episodes ago really like resonated which is sometimes we see this piece right enamel dial you know beautiful you know dial side perfect turn the watch over and what you feel is let down you know so you don't want that feeling you know as a as a person spending x amount on the watch you don't you want it all good yeah and i just find it's like somewhat not complete and with this uh uh interest in independent watches if anything it's brought more attention to finishing Mm. because a lot of the independent watchmaking story is about well you you kind of personify it you know you make it one person making it and making it by hand right now i know a lot of even independent brands they don't do it you know there's one person still does that does that does that but it's just a smaller outfit than a, a larger brand but that is the image that a lot of consumers have in their mind right um and therefore to really stand out because right now the, the collector even amongst independent brands has a lot of choice right the finishing has to have some kind of signature to it you know and i think that it, that is kind of seen i mean that explains the success of your piece if you look at recep 
you know, Dufour, they have a very distinctive uh, finishing design, Kari, you know, it, yeah. it's all there, but it's all they have their own kind of like language. Um, so yeah, very similar to Jack's answer. Plus, I personally can't get over, you know, if a movement has is not hasn't been thought of, you know, you think of it mm. more of an afterthought, you know, in a way, I don't want that. Yeah. Mm. It's, it's interesting, both, both of you three are not so interested in complication in the, no. or it is part of the, if you like a watch, a complication or not complication, it's uh, yeah, the same. It, it, shouldn't, yeah. it shouldn't matter. It doesn't um, impact the, yeah. Yeah, it's because we're very refined collectors. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Ryo, your last question. The last question, which I think it's interesting. Another <laughs> market our, research. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Maybe, but for later for me. <laughs> what do you think when an independent watchmaker stops his career? His brand should continue to develop new models or not? Ah, that's a good one. Never had I that mean, one. I, I'm thinking about Philippe Dufour. Yeah, that came to mind. Which yeah. uh, we can see he's um, giving his brand to his daughter, but uh, also Jaune, François Paul Jaune. He's a create. He's the creator of uh, his brand of, uh, of all these brands, the aesthetics, the and. Uh, what is going on when he will stop? Uh, we know he's, uh, he sold uh, the brand to, to, to Chanel, but if he's not, he's not uh, in the brand anymore, uh, does it make sense to, to continue the brand or, or not? And that's really hard. Um, can, I, can I answer first? Because I, okay, mm -hmm. so I think, because if you think Thanks about- Thanks for going first. <laughs> No, but this applies to a lot of things, right? It can be restaurants. It's not the actual chef that's still cooking there, right? It can be fashion brands where the designer left already. So it's applicable to so many things. But we don't go to a restaurant and get angry. Like, where's the original chef, right? <laughs> some people do. Some people do. We know somebody is, that would. Yeah, but I need, so with watches, right? You can't, because it takes so much marketing to get one brand to like, be like imprinted and for us to remember the brand right so you can't be like changing new like releasing new brands every five years or something so I think the departure of the original watchmaker has to be really big like he needs to emphasize he left <laughs> and the next design can't has to be okay yeah heavily inspired from the original watchmaker but it needs to have a very clear mark it can't just be like, okay, I'm just going to continue. And uh, yeah, well, that's how I feel. I think that um, you have to look at the brand and the positioning of the brand, because sometimes, you know, just linking on from Long Long's question, right? Let's say the design, like Tom Ford, right? He was a designer at Gucci, I think, right? There's a lot of people that buy at Gucci that didn't know that. They still don't know that. Mm. And there are some people that buy the whole you know, Hawk Couture that only bought it because he was the lead designer, right? Now, is it the case that your revenue is coming mostly from which kind of consumer target, you know, target? Is it coming from those people that just bought because it was Tom Ford or is it because they just bought this Gucci, 
right um and so it's difficult you know let's say your example of fpj if people are buying fpj i'm not saying they are if people are buying fpj because of fpj and fpj isn't there anymore it really damages the business so is it then in the interest of chanel to keep fpj somewhat in a kind of position right even in like an honorary position just so that you know it affects it doesn't affect business too much yeah right yeah. so that's what i think but this, you know it's not the case with a painter <laughs> you know you yeah. don't have paintings i was from, just thinking about that from, yeah like from picasso or <laughs> yeah it's not like also it doesn't make sense if let's say a painter passes away or is no longer in the scene and their children take over and yeah. uses the same name, you know, it doesn't exactly. really make yeah. sense. But in the watch sphere, it seems to, I, I know um, Kari's daughter is training as a watchmaker to and, and joining her father and obviously Daniela Dufour, but say if Philippe Dufour is no longer like retires from the scene or, um i i wouldn't want to see his daughter making the same watches as her dad i would i would want her to create something of her own mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which i don't know because she's so young and maybe her name will carry her further than her age but i can imagine the pressure um, and then come pressure, you, you, you come to think of what's good for the brand and it might be highly motivating to, to create more simplicities, but I think later down the road, it's not what, um, lasts. I don't know if that makes sense. Um, also, you know, I, I, I don't know them personally, but I, I find it interesting when Philippe Dufour announced that he was only making a certain number of simplicity, I think 200, but then he kept on making more. So I don't know. Like, I just feel if you were to say, okay, my waiting list stops here. I only make a certain number. You should abide by that and, and, and not surpass by any means. Like he made the anniversary, he made custom orders and, and, yeah, yeah, there's also like a like Roger Smith, right? Like George Daniels, he continued, and then he yeah, just, he continues he to Smith, make right? uh, names make under yeah. yeah, under with the oh. Daniels name, and yeah. and it makes you think. <laughs> yeah, good <laughs> question. Is there something we should know about your career? <laughs> yeah, are you selling out? Are you selling out now? <laughs> Me? Oh, I I have a daughter. She's two years old, so. I have the time. <laughs> yeah. no. Right. no, but I think it's interesting. I think it's maybe for me, it depends on the size of the, because Journe, François Paul Journe, is quite a big brand for me right now. It's yeah. Yeah. More, only one craftsman who's doing his watches. But uh, yeah, I think it's not the same for Philippe Dufour or, yeah. or other. Yeah. Mm. I mean, people still buy Frank Muller. I mean, Long Long yeah. just bought one last week, right? I knew you were going to say <laughs> So I was about to say, Dan just got one, but my mic was on mute. <laughs> so I can say it fast enough. 
<laughs> Too slow. Right. Right, Raul, we now go to the pump push around, okay? Okay. Yeah. Right. So just a series of quick questions. Okay. Yeah. Uh, as a person who loves architecture, what is the most iconic building ever for you? Yeah, I would say maybe the the Guggenheim Museum <laughs> in New York. Mm -hmm. I really like it. Okay. It, it's the modern the area uh, oh, the art I really like. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Yeah, Era. Needs us, uh, leads us nicely onto the next one. As an art lover, I um, let you take something home, right? So you can pick anything. Would you pick a masterpiece from one of the old masters or would you pick something contemporary? <laughs> That's difficult. Uh, more contemporary, I think. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Right. What, well, what do you miss from Spain that is not available in Switzerland? Really don't miss because I never, I never live there. But right. uh, I'll tell you the answer is paella. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Clearly also, obvious. Paella. Also. Yeah. You know, it's probably it's better drink. football as well. Better football. Barcelona definitely play better football. Right. <laughs> uh, number three. Uh, no, number four. Sorry. Favorite uh, Spanish food. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's paella. <laughs> okay. Right. The paella of my mother, of course. Oh, mm. <laughs> oh. I bet that is so tasty. Yeah. Right. What's your uh oh, this is what I read in one of your articles, right? You have a like a record player. So what's your favorite song on your playlist when you have your record player next to your workbench? What's your go-to song? Uh depend. I like vintage uh, stuff. Mm. like uh, soul music or funk music uh, you should listen to my playlist then but I, I also like contemporary music and uh, you know I play guitar so can I, I just say something like watchmaking is is so romanticized right like people have such a romantic uh, interpretation of watchmaking they they think of like watch making they see like an older gentleman working at its workbench somewhere in the alps you know <laughs> and then and then i go visit geneva for the first time and i visit the factories and there's people listening to rap music while finishing like <laughs> oh my God, it's so funny yeah but right. it depends of the work uh, i i really like to listen music to when i when i work but it depends. Sometimes you got to focus. <laughs> you got to yeah. be extremely focused and then I'll stop the music. But, mm. Uh, mm. Right. You collect furniture too. How do you get into that? With my wife. Um, she's a, she's a art history. She learned as art history at the university. And uh, of course, I, I always like uh, art and architecture design. And uh, we have a friend in Neuchâtel who has a shop. He, he, so, he sells um, vintage uh, furniture. And yeah, we started uh, to bought to his shop some chairs, some uh, tables. And it became a passion for, for us. Mm. Right. 
you have a fire in your house not not uh, well i hope you don't but you know if you had a, if you had a fire in the house sorry yeah if you had a fire in your house yeah. name one item you'd take with you the first item the only Pro- item probably the uh, the um, the books uh, with photos with the you know i take mm. a picture i take photos with a old school uh, uh, camera mm-hmm. so i only have the the photos on, uh, with paper Ah, so I okay. will save the photos. <laughs> okay. What about like if it was from your workshop? One thing we take from your workshop? Probably the tutorials. Ah, mm. oh, yeah. so sweet. <laughs> yeah, Caroline. You'd say Caroline. Yeah, Caroline. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And um, next one, a quote that you live by. Uh, I don't know. Uh, to be, it's not a quote, but it's the the freedom. It's important, mm. very important for me. It's to. I always have been searching for freedom when I. To when I when I started as independent, it's uh, it's because to have the freedom to to express myself, to be able to create my own pieces without, a, you know, a, a, a design team, a departments or. A marketing team who will mm-hmm. explain me you got to make this watch you got to put this color because it's a uh, hype right now mm-hmm. yeah, it's very important to have the total freedom to create uh, what i want to to make mm-hmm. okay uh next one one thing you'll always have in your fridge beers <laughs> okay <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. to have a good beer after a long work of a, a, day, a day of work yeah okay and the last one what is your favorite piece of furniture yeah it's um a corbusier chairs we, uh, we have in our living room it's a famous uh it's called the lc1 it's a famous chair the corbusier develop uh, create and uh, we own uh, two of these chairs, and it's quite iconic uh, design mm. furniture. Okay. Well, that concludes the pump push around. Thank you, Ryle, for being such a great sport, and uh, it was a pleasure to interview you. Did you have a good time? Yeah, really good. It was uh, so cool to share with yeah. you. Thank you very much. <laughs> right. So everybody, if you enjoyed that, please subscribe and follow us and leave a nice review. Um, And we'll see you guys on the next one. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye -bye. Bye-bye. As always, thank you for listening to The Waiting List Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to reach out to us at The Waiting List Podcast on Instagram or via our private accounts. We'll see you on the next one. Bye. Bye. Bye.